I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 1 Kings, in chapter number 19. 1 Kings chapter number 19. And uh, we'll get right into the message this morning. 1 Kings chapter number 19 is where we're going to look. And we'll start in verse number 1. 1 Kings 19 verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as one of, those, of, one, as one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, there an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts and for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand in the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and brake in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return unto, thy, uh, unto the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king of Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, Shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphath of Abel Meholah shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet have I left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Father, help us today. Thank you for every person that's here. Thank you for Jehovah Jireh Foundation and the way that you have used 
Brother Jim, his dear wife, and those that have partnered with them to impact your kingdom. I pray that we would catch a lesson from that, Lord, that you have a purpose and a plan for our life. I pray now that you would bless us, speak to our hearts through your word as only you can. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. The king of Israel during this time was a spineless weasel by the name of Ahab. I don't think that there has ever been a more cowardly man that ever wore a crown in the history of all of Israel. The queen who sat beside him had a name that would become synonymous with wickedness. She was the notorious Jezebel. And even unto this day, when you're talking about a woman who is given to wickedness, the name Jezebel is even used to this day. Together they led Israel down a very dark path away from God, and in fact the official religion of their administration that they incorporated into the land of Israel was Baal worship. I want you to understand that Baal worship was not just another denominational name that, that, you know, that tagged them for whatever they believed. It, it was far deeper than that. Baal was a, was a Canaanite Phoenician god that uh, required the sacrifice of children. They would carry their firstborns and literally burn them alive in an act of worship to this god who represented not just fertility, but the god of rain, rain bringing moisture to the ground and bringing the fertility of the crops. And so this was, a, this was an unusually degenerate form of worship that these Jewish people had given their life to under the leadership of Ahab and of Jezebel. <clears throat> During worship, adults would gather themselves around the altar and in infants would be burned alive as a sacrificial offering to this deity. And there amongst the horrific screams, the cries of burning children, of charred, the smell of charred human flesh, congregants, both men and women, would engage in perverted orgies that symbolized their worship to Baal. So I want you to understand, this isn't, this isn't just some off-brand of we go to church in a different place. I want you to know the depth of depravity and the depth of wickedness that was brought about when Ahab and Jezebel introduced and, and, and flourished um, the Baal worship that surrounded them in, in the pagan nations, that they would even allow such a perversion in the land, let much less promote it, I think indicates and reveals the darkness of their heart. In fact, the Bible says in uh, uh, chapter 16 of 1 Kings, verse 33, that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. He was the worst of the lot. And there were some bad ones before him. But he was the worst of the lot. But no matter how dark the hour... No matter how bleak the situation may be, if you'll study the history of humanity, you'll find that history is His story. And even at the darkest moments, God has always had a man, always 
always had a man. And like a meteor that blazed across the pitch blackness of night, there came onto the scene and stepped onto center stage a man by the name of Elijah, a prophet, a prophet in the best sense of the word. Now, you might think that such a man who now suddenly finds himself uh, in the middle of the battle, he's going to face down the, the most powerful man in, in his world at that time, Ahab. He's going to stand against everything that Ahab and Jezebel stand for. <clears throat> People that have folded up in front of them from fear and, and, and from the, the wickedness of, of, of their administration. Here is one man that steps onto center stage who is willing to confront them and face them. You might think that there would be at least some form of <clears throat> grandiose introduction, some entrance that might be notable for this man. But there was none. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, <clears throat> all of a sudden, it says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. I mean, just all of a sudden, Ahab, there's this guy standing in front of him, and his name is Elijah. He's from Tishba which is an insignificant little town that does not even exist today. He was a country boy, but he was no hayseed plowboy. He was country come to town, and all of a sudden this rough-hewn man that wore a, a mantle of, of, of animal hide, he steps up before the most powerful man in all the world, and he said, listen to me carefully, it won't rain again until I say it'll rain. You talk about authority, you talk about, you talk about some some gumption to be able to do that. Back in Georgia, you would say of him, he grew up in the sticks. Where, so far back, you have to pump daylight in. I mean, he's, he's, he's from the sticks, and yet he's willing to confront the most powerful man in the kingdom. Very quickly, very quickly, this man Elijah becomes a thorn in the side of both Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. And in fact, he prophesied their deaths and said that that, that, that uh, uh, Ahab's blood will be licked in the valley of Jezreel. Jezebel so wicked that, that when the dogs ate her after she was thrown from the, thrown from the wall, they, they, they left the parts of her that were so disgusting to them. John Knox of Scotland was such a powerful man in the kingdom of Bloody Mary that she made this statement. She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than I do an army of 10,000 men. Oh, that God would give us people today that had such courage and such gumption, that lived so devotedly for the Lord God that, that, uh, uh, that God could use us in such a way. Finally, there's a challenge. If you read the headlines of that day, it might say the battle of the gods. Elijah issues a challenge <clears throat> to the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the groves. And the, 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 the people are aware now that suddenly there's this incredible showdown and it's going to be had out on the top of Mount Carmel. Right there on the edge of the Jezreel Valley where the battle of Armageddon will one day take place. Jezebel, by the way, had already attempted to murder all of the prophets of God. And in fact, if it had not been for Obadiah, the servant that hid a hundred of them in a cave, 
there would be there would there would be none that had survived. And so here on Mount Carmel, up on top of this mountain there, the Jezreel Valley, um, they gather for the showdown. And so it's the it's the prophets of Baal's first shot, and they they've got a they've got an altar built there, and they're calling on God to do great things and to accept the sacrifice. They're God Baal, and they get so frustrated that they begin to cut themselves and slash themselves and throw themselves about, and they're just gone berserk because Baal won't answer them. One of the things I love about this story more than anything is, as I read the words of Elijah, I see clearly that he has the gift of sarcasm. What a great gift. I love it. And so there, he stands there and he begins to say, hey, where's your God? Maybe he's in the boys' room, you know? Where's your God at? Is he taking a break from being God? Where's he at? He's mocking them. And as he mocks them, they get, they get angry. Now, during this time, there was a drought. And if you could stand with me right now at this moment on top of Carmel and see, and, and see the height and, and the, the, the way down to the brook that, that they would have to draw water from. Okay, what? Hey, like, get the faucet. There's no faucet, okay? There's no well to prime and pump. They had to go down to the water below, and they had to fetch water from there. And so Elijah now, it's his turn. He sends men down in there, and they carry up precious buckets of water in a time of drought, and, and they pour 12 barrels of water on the altar. Okay? And, and, and it fills the altar. It's dripping with water. And it's, it's sogging down into the, into the dirt of Mount Carmel. And, and there Elijah calls on God. And God sends fire from heaven and laps the water up like a thirsty dog. And, and then all of a sudden it consumes not just the sacrifice but the altar itself. And, and there's great victory. And so now, now comes the real battle and... and uh, the prophets of Baal have been slain by, by uh, Elijah and the people that were there with him. But having heard of what happened and the humiliation that had taken place in their chosen religion, Jezebel, in her anger, sends word back and says to Elijah, I want you to know, I want you to know that by this time tomorrow you will be as dead as the prophets that you slew. And Elijah, upon hearing that, he, he, the Bible says that he went for his life. Now, I, I wish I could end the story. I wish that I could end the story with the great victory. And I wish I could tell you when all was said and done that the prophets of Baal were slain. And Elijah just, yes, he, he was excited about what God had done. But the story doesn't end there. And I, 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 think, I think that if we don't recognize the other part of the story, the part that doesn't fit, the part that is out of character for this bold dragoon of a prophet, this, this John Wayne-type prophet that, that called down fire from heaven. If we, don't recognize, if we don't recognize the undesirable part of the story, a part that you and I would have never written in, you know, then we're going to miss the lessons that God has for us from Mount Carmel. 
And so verse number four, we find him sitting under a juniper tree. I want you to just think with me for just a moment. I mean, it has it, I mean, just right, right back there, there's a great victory. But now, in verse number four, he sits under a juniper tree, yet he requests for himself that he might die. And he said, now it's enough. I've done everything I'm going to do. Take away, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. My father's are dead. My forefathers are gone. My family tree, they're all there. Look, I visit their graves. They're all gone. Why not me? I'm not better than my father's. Take my life now. And the man of God who was iconic, won an iconic showdown with false prophets, is now sitting under a juniper tree harboring a death wish. Now, listen to me carefully. This isn't, this isn't just a footnote to the story. In some ways, this is the biggest story in the story. This is the thing that we glean from. You see, anybody, anybody can stand on top of their caramel and shout the victory when God slays the enemy and defeats, and defeats the, 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 the wicked prophets of Baal. Anybody, anybody can stand on caramel and say, yes! See, that's the good testimony time. That's the time, that's the time when you get to say, God did some great things. But in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, the first part of that is, is turning to flight the armies of aliens and, and stopping the mouths of lions and all the good stuff. And then you get to verse 34, and the last half of verse 34, it says, and they were tortured. So there's, a, there's an A group and a B group. There's a Mount Carmel group, and there's a juniper tree group. There's a a time when everything we ask, God gives us, and then there's a time when we're wondering where God's at. There's a time when we have the freshness of victory in our life, and then there's a time when we're wondering what our life is even really all about. Do I have a purpose? Is life worth living? Now, I want you to listen carefully to me, because here's the first lesson that we get from that, and that is, listen, this is so important. Extreme lows often follow extreme highs. If you check a map out, this is going to shock you. My knowledge of geography and topography and things like that, you're going to be amazed at this, but listen carefully. You need to write this down. Valleys are located close to mountains. Okay, you're not impressed with that, but I, I, look, listen, listen, listen to me. Here's the reality of it. If you show me a mountain, I'm going to show you a valley somewhere nearby. And it's the same way in life. The same way in life. The reality of the matter is your valleys are probably going to be located really close to your mountaintops. And a part of our human nature is that we struggle with emotional mood swings. And those mood swings impact and infect and effect our our outlook on life, some, oftentimes that downswing occurs after a great victory. The valley follows the mountain. The valley follows the mountain. One minute we're standing on top of the world, and the next minute we're plunging over a, an emotional waterfall, and, and we can't seem to figure out that, listen, here's what, we, we can't figure out that we're most vulnerable during those times. See, the reality of the matter is you're most vulnerable not after a defeat or when things are going bad. That's when you're looking for a way up. You're most vulnerable after things have really gone well. 
That's when, that's when the tendency is there. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, listen to what Paul said. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgive I it and the person of Christ. Now watch this. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's a great verse of Scripture. Look, look, when you play the same team twice, you ought to have learned something from the first time you played them. I used to box, and there were times in our, in our boxing matches, I'd be boxing somebody that I'd boxed before. You know what you've got to figure out? What happened the first fight? What was his tendencies? What, when, we, when we face Satan, you know, you know what our problem is? We forget. We don't take notes. We're not aware of the fact. And one of the things, notice he said, forgive, forgive, forgave, forgive, forgave. What does that tell us? It tells us that, that, that um, one, of the, one of the devices that Satan uses to defeat us is conflicts with people and our unwillingness to forgive and let them go, thereby letting us go. See? Let, me, let me tell you this. If, if you're not willing to forgive, then you're going to struggle for a long, long time. Satan uses people to get to us and to bring us down. What does Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 teach us? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's a great statement. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Listen, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Here's the reality. It's easier for you to slap the person sitting next to you, or the guy on the job, or the neighbor whose kids you've got a conflict with, it's easier for you to get angry. See, flesh and blood, you can put your hands around their throat and squeeze hard. Okay? Okay, don't do that. Now, I'm just saying that you can do it. I'm not saying do it, okay? I can notice couples looking at each other like, really, Pastor? What? No, no, look at me. Listen to me. Paul is saying this to us. You're not wrestling against humanity. There's something behind the problem. It's so easy to get mad at people. It's so easy to point at people. Give me a tangible, give me a tangible form that I can blame everything on, and it eases me a little bit. Okay? But Paul said, you're missing, you're missing the point. The reality of the matter is, uh, is, is that Satan is the culprit that's behind it all. He's the one that creates the turmoil in our life. Listen, Satan has been a student of human nature for over 6,000 years. And he learns. And he knows where you're weak. And he knows where humanity is weak. The reality of, of the matter is, uh, he's, he's uh, like a roaring lion. He, he attacks when we're least diligent. I told our folks on the Holy Land trip, there's one of the things I said, I want you to listen to me. When you get home, there will be an attack. We've walked for 10 days on a high. I mean, look, look we've, we've been to Capernaum. We took a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. We saw the empty tomb. We saw Golgotha. We prayed all by ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've, we, we've been on an emotional high for 10 days. If you think you're going home and you're just going to say, zippity-doo-dah, what a great time. No, no, no. Satan knows now that the higher you are, the further the fall. And he's going to do everything he can to knock you from your pedestal, and so beware of that. Yesterday, uh, or the day before yesterday, I got an I got a, uh, a email from a lady that was on our trip. She said, oh, Brother Dane, you're so right. 
She said, please pray for us. Satan is attacking my family. I mean, just listen. Be, be, extreme lows often follow extreme high. Number two, the second lesson is not just the reality. Okay, there's a valley on the other side of this I need to be aware of. Okay? I need to be able to praise God through it all. Second thing is this. Uh, we aren't bulletproof. Now think of Elijah. Think of Elijah. I think, if there's a, I think if there's a prophet in the Bible that is known for boldness, it would be Elijah, okay? Other prophets are known for a lot of things, but Elijah, I mean, he, he just, he's the guy that walks in, you know, guns hanging low. I mean, that's, that's his personality. This, this guy, this guy is, is, is eyeball to eyeball with the most powerful thing in the world. And yet now all of a sudden, he cuts and runs. That's like, that's like Wild Bill Hickok challenging somebody to a purse fight. You know what? That's not what he did. Okay, he just stared him in the eye, and he had his reverse. They were reversed, and ivory handled guns. And when you met Wild Bill on the street, you know what you did? You said hello, sir. You didn't. They they said that when he when he went out in 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 Dodge, that the streets got quiet. As soon as he stepped out and started walking, everything got quiet. Why? That's his personality. So here's Elijah. He's just called down fire from heaven, and 450 prophets were slain, and all of a sudden. You look out from Carmel, and there's this little figure, lickety-split, stirring up a small cloud of dust as he runs across Jezreel. He's running for his life. What does that say about Elijah? Well, he was a coward. Oh, not Elijah. Elijah. Elijah was no coward. He had just faced down the most powerful man in the world and all of his prophets. He had a great victory. What it tells us about Elijah is that he wasn't bulletproof. What it tells us about Elijah is that he wasn't superhuman. What it tells us about Elijah is that he was subject to the same frailty and weaknesses and the emotional difficulties sometimes that you and I are. In fact, James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. <laughs> and yet he prayed and it, 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 that it might not rain, that rain it, it did not rain the space of three years and six months. That's amazing. Did you know this? Did you know that you're, did you know that you're cut out of the same cloth as Elijah? We're, we're all the same stuff. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. You know what the hall of faith is? It's the hall of failure. I don't take the time now, but go through that when you get home. And here's what you're going to find out. Listen, here's what you're going to find out. You're going to find out that really Hebrews chapter 11 isn't about a bunch of great people. It's about a great God. Because in almost, almost, with few exceptions, every one of those guys, you know what they did? They failed. Noah got drunk. Moses broke the tablets and cursed. Jacob, are you kidding me? The most dysfunctional family in the Bible. And Jacob's the patriarch of that. I mean, go down the line. Samson is in the Hall of Faith. Rahab the harlot, just her past reputation would have kept her out of the hall of faith in most churches. I mean, the reality of the matter is, all of these people had things that disqualified them, and yet God said, no, 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 this isn't about them. It's about God that did great things with them. We're not bulletproof. We bleed. We can become discouraged sometimes, and we are susceptible to emotional downs. 
And the reality is this. Listen, here's the reality. The reality is probably every one of us at some time or another in our life have spent some time under a juniper tree. And we can say, I broke my leg, and everybody says, oh, sorry for that. I'll pray you get healed. We can say, well, I got, I got cancer treatment. We'll pray for you. Somebody can say, I got a heart trouble. We'll pray for, we'll pray for you and the surgeon. We'll pray that God will do a great. All these, all these external things, but, but when we say, we, we pray for those, but if we say, I, yeah, I'm down, then all of a sudden we become unspiritual. No, we become human. We become human. See, we're, we're frail. We're we're susceptible to these types of things with all the imperfection and, and struggles that come in life. We need to, we need to own up to that. Now, here's the, here's the thing, and I got, I'm going to move, but listen carefully to me. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think it's insignificant that Elijah was tested in, in a number of different areas. Um, if, if you think about the connection between his body and his mind and his spirit, they're all linked. Elijah had a great victory, but he crashed, he crashed, he crashed when his emotions began to deal with the fact that now his life was in trouble. His life was being threatened. And then he ran like a rabbit across the valley of Jezreel. And now all of a sudden we find him in a spiritual low as he's sitting underneath the tree with a death wish. What happened? All of these things connect. Listen, let me, let me tell you this. When you get, when you get physically exhausted, Emotionally, you're frail, and spiritually, you're weak. You ever been to a place where you're so tired you were snapping off? You ever been to a place where you got so down that you weren't reading your Bible? When you're down, that's when you should read your Bible the most. But it's funny, it's funny that, our, that our emotions and our, our mental state of life is all tied in with our physical. Okay, So be careful and be aware of that. I think, it's, I think it's no wonder that Jesus said uh, to his disciples, come apart and rest a while. I think, he, uh, I think it's worth mentioning, by the way, that underneath the juniper tree, okay, what did, what did the Lord do for him? He fed him. Okay, he didn't say, dude, you are the, you are the most unspiritual, sorry, no count prophet that I've ever sent fire for. Are, do, you, do you realize what I just did for you? You don't hear any of that. You know what God did for him? He fed him. Why? Because, because it wasn't all just spiritual and it wasn't all just emotional. He knew that he needed strength and he said the journey's too, too big for thee. Third lesson we learn is this, and that is we're not alone. Now, back in the garden, what did Satan do? He got, see, he got Eve... Um, isolated, and he weakened her resolve by convincing her that the decision about the fruit was hers and hers alone. When Eve should have found solace in the presence of her husband, and I think that if you remember our study of Samson, one of the things that led to Samson's downfall was his aloneness. He saw himself as a one-man band. Listen, he died as he lived alone, and God doesn't intend that for any of us. When we embrace when we embrace aloneness, we're in trouble. The reality of the matter is that Elijah was shutting himself off from reality. Listen, and what did he do under the juniper tree all alone in his own mind? What did he do? He created a false narrative. I'm the only one. That's not true. But when you get to the place to where you are, you are isolating yourself, 
and you're shutting yourself off from the influences that God has in your life, what happens is you create a false narrative. Everybody else is falling out, you know. And it caused him to underestimate his own importance because he was basking in his aloneness. So now all of a sudden, guess who is the man? You know who the man is? It's the guy that just ran from Jezebel. He's the man. Nobody else is faithful, but I am. Look at me. Listen to me. Churches create that kind of culture sometimes too. We're the only. We are the only church. that's, That's a dangerous place to be. Where you get to the place to where you think you've got a corner on truth, and we are the only we are the only church that God is blessing, and we are the only one standing for truth. That's ludicrous and ridiculous. By the way, none of us have the authority to set ourselves up as, as the standard whereby everybody else must measure. It's the book that we all have to measure up to. We, 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 don't, we don't set ourselves up as that standard. Now, let me just say this, and I'm going to close. I'm going to go to my last point. You're you're not the only one serving God. Look at me. You're not the only one. You're you're just not it. I'm sorry, but you're not the only one serving God. And if you get that complex, if you get that complex, the next step is into full-scale Phariseeism. When you get to the place to where you think you're the only one, you become a Pharisee. When a church gets to the place where they think they're the only one, it becomes a, a, an assembly of Pharisees. Let's don't do that. Our concern is not with anybody else. Our concern is with our church and how God's using us and, and staying right with God. Don't, don't, don't ride solo. God hadn't called us to be a lone ranger. He said, he said I have 7,000 in Israel who've never bowed the knee or never kissed the image of Baal. You're not the only one, Elijah. There's a lot more beside you. So really, God's work doesn't hinge on us as much as we think it does when we sit under a juniper tree. Last of all, let me close with this, and that is simply this. God will repurpose you. Now, here's, here's, here's the guy. I mean, here he is. Here's the man. You know what I think? I think most of us, because of our con, our, our, the concepts we carry in our mind of God, which comes from years of preaching and churches we've attended and things like that, I think, I think most of us have an image of God that would lead us to believe that God's going to deal harshly with this guy. I mean, he just called fire down. God sent fire down. And now he's running. And I, I think we would think that God would say, you've got to be kidding me. After what I just did, and you're under a juniper tree, suck it up, buttercup. Get up and get out of here. Stop being a wimp, okay? How could, you, how, could you, how could you do that? But you know what? If you go to the juniper tree, you know what you're going to find? A whole lot of grace. There's no rebuke. There's, uh, he gives him truth, but God doesn't nail him. He's not kicking him when he's down. He's not even reminding him of his failure. God doesn't say, yes, you just did. No, God doesn't do any of that. The reality is God sends a meal to a prophet that's crashed under a juniper tree, and he gets him back on the trail. 
He puts him up into Horeb and assures him he still has a purpose for his life. And here's one of our problems is this. We listen, we listen for the, the tempest. We search the earthquake. We expect the fire to reveal what God wants. But instead it was a still small voice. Can, can I just tell you, there's a tenderness in that. We want God to work in our lives in earthquakes. Give me an earthquake. Well, something obviously is happening. No, no, no. You know where God works the deepest? It's in the still, small voice. We need not anticipate the others. Listen for the voice. Listen for the still, small voice down deep in your heart. That thing that doesn't shake your world, but brings peace in the middle of your tempest. When the storms rage and the earth shakes and the fire burns, you'll find God in the still, small voice of your life. If you keep reading the chapter, you'll find this. And we saw it in there. God said, I got somebody for you. Isn't that just like God? He said, listen, Elisha. I'm going to send you an Elisha. Who's Elisha? He's the encourager of the crashed prophet. Can I, can I say this to you? Listen to me. One of the problems in Christianity is we kick people when they're under the juniper tree and we, we, we criticize them for their, for their downness. You know what we ought to be? We ought to be encouragers. We ought to be encouragers. We ought to find people that are down and pick them up and lift them up and let them know that God still has a purpose and a plan for their life. If he didn't, he wouldn't have one for us because you failed far more times I failed far more times than I'm willing to admit. And yet God just hands me my purpose again and says, all right, get up and get going. And I'm thankful for that. Let's bow our heads. Lessons from Carmel. Lessons from a crashed prophet. Lessons from a man who runs away from victory. Lesson from a man who has a death wish. Lesson from a man who forgot, he forgot what God had just done in his life. Forgot it. What's God done in your life? Think back, not so far back, you'll find a miracle, because God is a God of miracles. Pastor, I've sort of lost my vision and my zeal. Well, that's all right. God will, God will give it back to you. God's going to send you food. He's going to feed you. He's going to remind you that the journey's too big for you, so He's going to give you what you need to stay on track. And then he's going to send an Elijah into your life. Be thankful for them, by the way. They're gifts. Elishas are gifts. Be thankful for the people that are encouragers in your life. Our Father, we thank you for the reality 
of who you are in our downtimes. Sometimes on Mount Carmel, when we sense the fire, the victory, it's real easy to feel close, but even in our juniper tree experiences, you come to us and you feed us and you send encouragement into our life and you repurpose us and let us know that you're still there. We thank you for that. And I pray now that you'll bless this week, bless our activity tonight and everything that we do. I pray that if there be some here under the juniper tree, that they would get up and get back to serving you faithfully. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.